Improve yourself on a daily basis and you will become an invaluable and high-performing member of your organization. Welcome to BA Blocks, the show for the motivated business analyst who's driven to sharpen their BA skills no matter where they are or what they're doing. Welcome to another episode of the show. My name is Imal Berrielli, and today we're going to be talking about interviews. Now, for many business analysts out there, interviewing can be an extremely stressful situation. And in this episode, I'm going to be playing for you an example of how to do very well in an interview. I recently had a chance to sit down with Rishi Poptani, who is a more senior member of our community. And Rishi and I did a mock style interview where I acted as the interviewer asking the questions and Rishi acted as the interviewee who is acting as the candidate to answer the questions that are being asked. Now, there is a video version of this interview that exists inside of our community, and I'll be leaving you a link to that post that contains the actual video and many of the comments that our other members have left. If you're already a member, you can go ahead and just click on that link to get to the video and leave your own comments and ask your own questions about that interview. If you're not already a member, I'm going to recommend that you head over to bablocks.com membership and sign up for your free membership to our BA Blocks community to get access to this interview and all of the other resources that we have there for free for all of our members. So in this episode, I'm going to be playing for you the audio of that conversation that I had with Rishi. What I want you to do is to listen very carefully to the questions that are being asked and think for yourself about how you would go about answering those questions. Then what I want you to do is to compare how Rishi answered those questions to how you would normally answer those questions and see if there's a difference in the way that you would have answered it versus how Rishi answered it and use this as an opportunity to really prepare yourself for upcoming interviews that you might have. And so in this episode, I'm just going to be playing you the audio file, but in the Next episode of this show, I'm going to be doing a detailed breakdown of everything that Rishi did right in that interview. And we're going to be going through details step by step through all of the questions that I asked and really breaking that interview down to do a real detailed analysis on how that interview was performed. Okay, so in this episode, again, what I want you to do is to just listen and really think for yourself about how you'd be answering those questions. And what we'll do in the next episode is go through this interview piece by piece together. And hopefully what you get out of both of these episodes is a much better idea of why the interviewer asked certain types of questions. And you'll hear an actual example of how to answer those types of questions very well. All right. And so with all of that said, let's dive right in and listen to Rishi's answers to many of the questions that were asked. And in the next episode, we'll dive in and do much more detailed analysis of this conversation. Rishi, what I'd like to do is kind of, I've had a chance to go through your resume and I see that you do have quite a bit of experience in the domain that is being interviewed for. What I'd like for us to do is to really just kind of get to know each other a little bit and then we'll just dive into the contents of your resume a little bit more. So I'm wondering if we can start that off with you just telling me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, So as you pointed out, I have uh, over nine years of experience as a business analyst. Mm -hmm. Most of it has been in the capital market space. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my most recent project, I was working with one of the leading investment banks uh, in Europe. Uh, and I was part of their IBOR implementation. I was the lead business analyst for a software that uh, was responsible for 
the submission of interest rate benchmarks on a daily basis. So the bank that I was working for uh, is on the panel that's, that makes regular submissions to benchmark administrators. And okay. that's why this, this software is not only critical from a functional or an operational perspective, it has a reputational risks associated with it as well. Absolutely. So that seems like uh, that seems like it's, it seems like one of those so those types of projects where there's a lot of pressure to make sure there aren't any major mistakes, especially with reputational yes. risk is involved yes. here. Uh, so that's great, and we'll get into your experiences as a as a lead business analyst a little bit uh, a little bit later on. So that's a great first answer to that question. Um, can you kind of just give me a little bit of an overview of the throughout all of the projects that you've been through? You know, there are uh, certain types of projects where you can be on where things tend to go very smoothly. And undoubtedly, if you're involved in any kind of IT project, uh, you're always going to be involved in a project where things don't go as smoothly. Yeah. Uh, from your own experiences, have you had any situations where things haven't gone as smoothly? And can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did in that project? Yes, uh, the way I look at it, I am only able to make a living because things don't go smoothly. Because if they did, I mostly I, I, people like me wouldn't be required. Uh, I, I don't mean to be a firefighter. But what I'm trying to say is uh, the kind of work that business analysts do is fraught with ambiguity, right? So, and the risk is even more when the projects deal with uh, really important things like IBOR submission or the implementation of a major regulatory platform like MIFID 2. So, on a, on a regular basis, I'm faced with the typical issues that business analysts face. Uh, for example, difficult or recalcitrant stakeholders, mm -hmm. um, people, I would say stakeholders who are not clear exactly on what they want. Yeah, They know why they're doing something. Uh, in some cases, not even that, but mostly I've been lucky enough to work with stakeholders who, who've got their business drivers sorted out, but it becomes very difficult for them to prioritize their uh, needs so that's a frequent challenge. And those priorities, even once decided, keep moving up and down. Right. So right. that's something I have to, to deal with. Secondly, being at the crux of uh, the development process, the software development process, I have to deal with development teams, with QA professionals, deployment professionals, uh, DevOps guys. right? And all of these guys have their own uh, timelines, their own agendas, and in a lot of cases, their own motivations. So to balance all of these, right, mm -hmm. that is something that is common, that that's, that's something I've experienced in all my projects. Right. So uh, I would say that these two are the, the biggest challenges that in general, I've faced in my career. Yeah, that's actually great, because your experience really shows through in that answer. Because what I'm hearing there is that You've had the experiences where you're dealing with a lot of uh, stakeholders who are not totally clear about their own needs, first of all. You'll have oftentimes stakeholders in organizations where you'll have the stakeholders that you have on your own project are going to have competing needs. You'll experience those types of situations on a lot of projects. And uh, what I've also noticed in what you're saying here is that you actually have full lifecycle uh, implementation experience because if you're working with the DevOps teams, for example, that typically means that you are working to move things from one environment to another. And so you're not just doing the upfront business analysis work, you're actually working full life cycle across, uh, across the entire development life cycle and delivery yeah. process, which is, which is very good. Uh, just cycling back to um, the idea of working with uh, stakeholders who have 
let's say, very unclear needs. Do you, can you talk to us a little bit about your approaches to dealing, let's say, with a stakeholder who, especially when you're dealing with uh, much more senior stakeholders who are at the strategic level, a lot of times they have a good sense of the direction that they want the organization to go in and they understand their own uh, business needs at a high level. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you do with stakeholders like that to help them understand what their more detailed requirements might be uh, and to help them kind of clarify their own understanding of what it is that they need operationally? Sure. Uh, So typically what happens with uh, fairly senior people is that, uh, as you said, they they know uh, very vaguely what they want, uh, but they're not quite sure how to go about it. And in some cases, they might have a set of priorities which they want to pursue, but they're Mm -hmm. not quite sure of the order in which they are to be pursued. That's right. So uh, some techniques or tools that I've used successfully in the past uh, are, uh, there's a set of prioritization techniques. So there is something called the $100 technique. So I hypothetically speak to them. First list out, uh, say the top five or six things that you want to do. Mm -hmm. Brainstorm. I, I will not counter question anything that you say let's just write down whatever you whatever comes out of your mouth Um, and then uh, if I gave you a hundred dollars right now and ask you to spend it on just the top four out of these five or six what would be the amount that you would allocate to each of those four and which ones would you leave out that sort of gives me an idea of what what they are subconsciously prioritizing but not able to probably get through immediately. Yeah, that's one. Uh, second is uh, we use something called quality function deployment. It's something that is 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 very time consuming, mm-hmm. and that's why it's used only when your traditional approaches don't have traction. So things like let's do a cost benefit analysis. So if you do something, what is the benefit that you are going to get versus what is the risk or the loss that you face if you don't do it. Right. So a combination of these two things often helps us to prioritize. To take it further, what we what I often do is get it get some technical personnel involved mm-hmm. and add to this mix the level of technical risk involved. So feasibility with respect to the resources that are available, right? That's also important. Yeah. Which helps us sort of get a very good handle on what needs to be tackled first. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a very it's a very effective prioritization technique that you use to basically give somebody a certain amount of credit and say, what things do you really want? Because when you force a person to really have to allocate those fictional credits, then you really get force them to to kind of think that uh, think through their own priorities in a in a very in a very clear way, which is which is very good. Now let's imagine a scenario where we have let's say two director level stakeholders on your project and you're really spearheading the uh, scoping of the project and you're doing the business requirements. And uh, now these two directors have a very different priorities of what they want from you. And let's say uh, we have an example where uh, there's one director who is really looking for a certain feature in the product that you're looking to deliver. But uh, another one of our directors who's on the same project has um, uh, very strong objections to spending the resources needed to deliver that product, uh, to deliver that feature in the product. And they're really trying to get their own items onto the list uh, ahead of the priority. If you're faced with a situation like that, um, what are some of the things that you can do to help resolve that that situation? Uh, yeah, so I've faced a similar situation, not, not exactly the same because um, 
frankly i have never had the fortune slash misfortune of dealing with two directors at the same time mm-hmm. but yeah pretty two two pretty senior people representing competing interest groups so there was just on my last project where on the ibor implementation uh, there are two groups that are constantly at loggerheads mm-hmm. because of the nature of the work that they're supposed to do That's one right. is uh, the group that is responsible for getting the submissions out on time mm-hmm. the second is our internal surveillance group okay. who will do anything to slow things down so as to minimize the risk of erroneous submissions Got now it. you can probably imagine why these two guys are all these two groups are always at at cross purposes right so there was a feature where the submission team head wanted a copy from yesterday feature so mm-hmm. the figures that were submitted yesterday could be submitted today right. and he was he was really adamant that we should have it right mm-hmm. but the when these features were taken to the surveillance group uh, for their validation they were up in arms they didn't want this they said that if the team is getting paid every day they should be using their brains every day to come up with numbers the software is helping them to do that copy from yesterday is not a good feature for several reasons uh, yeah. yeah so obviously arbitration is the first approach i tried to get them on the same table and speak about it but when it became clear that that was not going to work and i don't claim the credit for this one of my uh, reportees suggested this we we super uh, we we sort of refined the idea and we put it to both parties the idea was that the submission team would be able to copy from yesterday mm-hmm. but they would be able to do that only a certain number of times a week uh-huh. and and the number of times that they would be able to do that during a week would be controlled by the surveillance team depending Understood. on the Okay. depending on the periods of stress for the bank right yeah and so in that experience did you find that both of the parties were uh, i don't want to say happy but were they both um willing to go along with with that suggestion yes. yeah yes they were okay. willing to go along and they actually uh, drafted a note of appreciation which of course i duly passed on to my uh, subordinate and uh, i was really happy that both parties got something out of it not exactly what they wanted Mm-hmm. but uh, yeah that was one recent example of how uh, we we dealt with competing requirements that's excellent uh and it's good to hear that uh you have stakeholder groups negotiating in the way that you did in that case because oftentimes you'll find that uh when there are those types of competing priorities a lot of times the two sides can't come together and they can't really agree on a solution that's as innovative as as the one that your team delivered so that's it's great now let's just imagine a, the scenario that same scenario but let's say we didn't have that innovative solution on the table and we just really couldn't get the two teams to agree would there be another approach in your mind in handling that situation uh if that hadn't worked uh, i had only one thing in mind i was going to uh, escalate this to my manager and ask him to arbitrate uh, because he was more likely to you know be listened to mm-hmm. and this might seem like a vanilla solution but uh, to be honest that was the only thing that that i could have done uh, the only other thing that i could have thought of was uh, in in our project right it's it's all revenue driven so uh, sometimes it's a simple question of who's paying for the feature Mm-hmm. right so right. if someone's paying for the feature and they're ready to have it delivered and uh it's it's the burden of not executing the feature due to uh, sort of an audit step falls on the surveillance team then i would 
tell them look take it up with the, the audit team or your superiors if That's if right. we produce this feature and they bin it later then uh, at least it's not in our bucket yeah yeah that's good and i think that the um last option to escalate is always the op- option that we have to fall back on a lot of times as business analysts when uh, we've tried everything else you've tried all the innovative approaches that you can take and you're still saying that your stakeholders are really not able to come to yeah. some sort of an agreement then uh, it seems like uh, a lot of times those escalation paths need to exist in the organization and uh, your ability to escalate through your own chain of management is usually the right way to 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 get those things resolved. So that's so that's great. I want to touch a little bit on uh, your experience in working with the uh, development and uh, the infrastructure teams in uh, across the different projects that you've been on. So. Software developers tend to have a very uh, unique, I would say, uh, disposition, and they tend to have their own way of working. And uh, in most organizations, that's the case. But in projects where you're uh, really developing or you're enhancing these mission-critical systems, like the ones that you've had experience working that have massive reputational uh, liabilities possibly attached to them, in those types of situations, the developers... Uh, tend to have very, very high standards and they have tend to have very high expectations of the analysts that they work with. And so can you speak uh, a little bit to uh, your experiences with that? Yes, uh, I would say that uh, I've been lucky enough to work with some really good developers. Mm-hmm. And because they're very good at what they do, they expect the same level of competence from everyone around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has generally been the case. But uh, if I had to pick one situation it was uh, my mifid to implementation right now that was a very high pressure regulatory program that had a hard stop uh, because the regulation went live on the 3rd of january 2018 so there was no sort of negotiation we had to get it done there was a piece on uh, instrument data determination which was really complex and uh, the developers were they had no idea of the complexity uh, but they were very closely with me to identify what exactly needed to be done. It was uh, a sort of a symbiotic process because I needed to understand the feasibility of whatever I was going to propose. So Mm -hmm. I worked very closely with them and there was a very closed feedback loop all the time. So I would go back to to the requirement owners, take the requirements from them, give it to the developers, check doable, check feasible, et cetera. And, and, and because of this, we managed to to implement or deliver a very crucial piece of functionality whereby the developers also felt a part of the solution. So they were not just writing code, but yeah. they, they, they felt like equally vested stakeholders right from the beginning because their voice was heard. Very often, uh, I've seen projects where, uh, even when in, in some of my earlier years where I was working with uh, senior BAs and they would treat biz, uh, they would treat QAs or or Uh, development professionals as separate teams and sort of develop silos in their own heads. Mm -hmm. But I've consciously tried to avoid that. And I've seen that it really helps. Okay, good. That's good. Like you said, in many organizations, some business analysts will oftentimes just treat them as a separate team, not really doing a whole lot of consultation as they're determining the business needs and writing their functional specifications and they will sometimes only consult the development team right at the back end when they think they have everything ready and uh, not getting that development feedback right up front with uh, a lot of what you're producing can oftentimes 
create problems for you down the line that you're you're not going to be able to foresee. So making sure that the development team is looped in all throughout, especially for very complex things where uh, a lot of times the development teams themselves will have a lot of questions that the analysts might not necessarily have thought of. So having that uh, regular interaction with them and making them feel like they've been heard and that their concerns have been heard is very important for uh, developers, especially in this domain. Uh, just looking at your uh, resume here, uh, so it seems here that you have a bit of a programming background uh, as well. Uh, so you started off your career initially as a programmer analyst? Yeah, that's right. Okay, and so you uh, would you say that in the domain that you're in that um, your development background helps you in, in some ways or do you think that that's something that's, uh, that's just coincidental? No, I would say it's a, it's a very important thing. It's a it's a great asset. Uh, two ways. So while I was uh, while when, when I first started my career, I started writing code. Mm-hmm. I realized two things. I, I wanted to be in the industry, but not in this role. I mm-hmm. saw what BAs were doing. I thought that I'm more suited to that. Um, so it helped me in my choice of career. So that's there, of course. And um, having written code for a bit, and I still write code in some forms. So a bit of SQL, a bit of Python, right? So that helps me understand how they think of problems and solutions. So in terms of data structures, right? right. In terms of how data would be transmitted, stored, viewed, uh, what could be the practical difficulties with something that I'm, I'm proposing? So mm-hmm. I can't just say, you know what, this is a requirement, go do it. It's not my problem, you know? Yeah. So uh, yeah, it does help me because I've, I've been on the other side for a bit. Okay. That's great. Um, going back to uh, your experiences uh, as a team lead now, uh, let's say if we were in the process of launching a new project that we estimated we need uh, five total analysts for, uh, and it was in an area that you have strong domain knowledge in, in that situation, do you think that uh, really not really knowing anything about any of the other analysts that are on your team, would you uh, see yourself more as a team member uh, in an initiative like that? Or would you see yourself as more of a team lead uh, for that type of an initiative? Oh, well, I think it, the answer would depend on, on a couple of things. Firstly, what is the official position? So mm-hmm. it, quite, it, it could be that um, the four other, the five other analysts that are working with me are equally experienced and are uh, equally talented. Mm-hmm. In, and there is no clear demarcation as to who's going to report to whom. Right. Right. So that, that, that's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, the pieces of work that we, that we are assigned individually, mm-hmm. obviously at some point we would sit around a table and, and share what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, share each other's pieces of work. Right. If it became clear that those pieces are pretty independent and can be analyzed independently, completely mm-hmm. insulated from the others, then uh, the question of leading as such doesn't really arise. But if it seems that yeah, there's a lot of synergy between the, the points uh, and uh, by just consultation, we realize that, you know, one of us, it could be me, it could be someone else, really has the knowledge to fast track this, then I'd be more than happy to follow or lead as the case may be. Okay. Okay.